From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with the Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bandib. Leila Slimani's latest novel, The Perfect Nanny, has been a huge hit in France, winning the Prix Goncourt and making her one of the most celebrated writers in the world. She wants to belong. She wants to be part of something, but she doesn't know exactly what. She probably wants to be part of this family, and she's very, very afraid of um, the fact that one day the mother, Miriam, is going to tell her, you know what, we don't need you anymore, because that's the story of her life. We speak with Leila Slimani about her novel and her dual status in France as Moroccan and French. Later in the program, we remember broadcast media pioneer, Arab-American activist, and longtime host of the Middle East in Focus radio program on KPFK in Los Angeles, the great Don Bustani, who passed away last week in Santa Barbara at the age of 89. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Leila Slimani's new novel, The Perfect Nanny, begins with the shocking sentence, The baby is dead. It took only a few seconds. The novel, which tells the story of a murderous nanny, was inspired to the author by the horrific death of two young children who were found stabbed in the bathtub of their Upper West Side apartment in New York in 2012. In 2016, The Perfect Nanny earned Leila Slimani the Prix Concours, France's top literary prize. She was only the 12th woman to win this prize in the 115 years of that literary prize. Leila, before becoming a full-time writer, you worked as a journalist for the weekly magazine Jeune Afrique, and you even got arrested in Tunisia while reporting on the Arab Spring. Both of your first novels were inspired by real stories. How has your journalistic career helped or influenced your work as a novelist, if at all? You know, I think that when you are a journalist, when you go to, for example, Alger or uh, Tunis and you have to write, you ha just have two days and you have to write a piece, you must be very aware of everything that is happening around you. You have to observe every detail. You have to look how people are walking in the streets, how they are eating, how women are wearing clothes. So you need to observe everything. And I think that's helped me for uh, my novels because I like to observe every details in the everyday life. It's very powerful reading your work. It seems so real. You get into the psychology of your characters. It's almost frightening. <laughs> so you are both Moroccan and French. You were born in Rabat and raised in Morocco until age 17 when you moved to Paris for your studies. Leila Slimani, your bestseller, Lullaby, received France's highest literary award last year, the Prix Goncourt. You're only, I think, the 12th woman Yes. To receive it, probably the first Maghrebi, uh, North the African. First, and the first pregnant woman. And the first pregnant <laughs> to woman, it, too. Yes. That's very impressive. <laughs> that was very sad, actually, because I couldn't drink wine for the Goncourt. I was at Rouen. It's a very famous restaurant, and they had very good wine, and I couldn't drink. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so your bestseller, Lullaby, has been translated into many languages, including English. I found it under the alternate title 
the perfect nanny, which confused me a little bit. It's just that there's an English-British version and now exactly. an American version. In any case, it's an international bestseller. And I must say that this book really took my breath away. It's a psychological thriller about a perfect nanny and her growing and passionate attachment to the family that she works for, raising all manner of class and social justice questions in the most subtle of ways. It's really fascinating the way you do it. It's about the double murder of two young siblings by their nanny. The novel starts off in the immediate aftermath of the murder. You're describing this liberal upper middle-class Parisian couple and their nanny, who is economically and psychologically struggling. Growing up in Morocco, you say that you have witnessed really heartbreaking situations of domestic workers. Tell us a little bit how that must have influenced maybe your story. You know, my parents, they were working a lot. My mother was a doctor and my father was a banker. So I think that we needed a lot to have domestic workers at home. We had a nanny. We had people working uh, with my parents. So as a little child, I could witness how much we needed them. And I could also feel how much my nanny was uh, sometimes sad, sometimes humiliated by her position. And it was very weird because my nanny, she couldn't write, she couldn't read, but I was going at school. So as much as I was going older, the gap between my nanny and I was getting bigger mm. and I was closer to my mother and I was going far and far away from her. And I could feel that she was very sad because of this situation. And um, when I speak about humiliation, it's the fact that uh, you do as if she was a member of the family. Everyone was telling her, oh, you know, Mwima, because we called her Mwima, like a uh, little, little mummy, mom, little, yeah, little, mom, little yes. mom. Oh, you're a member of the family. We love you. But everyone knew it was not true because if one day my mother wants her to go away, she can go away in a minute. So it was very cruel. And I wanted in a certain way through this book to give her a sort of tribute and to say to her that I know what she felt during this time. Wow. What was the spark that gave you the idea for this book? It was um, the fact that I was a mother myself and that I decided to hire a nanny to take care of my son. And I was in Paris in the afternoon and I began to do interviews of women who were uh, much older than me, sometimes 20 years or 30 years older than me. And I was feeling like a baby myself. It was very weird for me to think that I was going to be the boss of one of those women. And those women were very often coming from abroad, from very, very far away, women from Philippines, from uh, Ivory Coast, women who had struggled a lot in their lives, who had much more experience of life than myself. And I was like, it's so interesting to tell the story of those invisible women, mm. because without them, my life, my life as an independent woman who can go out at night, who can work, who can do whatever she wants, my life is not possible. So everyone is speaking about empowerment of women, but we don't see or we don't want to see the fact that to empower some women, we need to exploit other women. And I wanted in a certain way to put light on those invisible women. Which you did really beautifully. I mean, you read this book and it grips you, not just the story. 
It's a phenomenally successful book. It sold 600,000 or more copies in France, which in France is huge. It's the equivalent of 6 million in this country. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an international bestseller. But the reason is that you tell the story so compellingly that we absorb all these things you're just describing. We don't feel like, oh, this is about a book about class struggle or these poor people being exploited by these bourgeois. We don't feel that at all. We just accept it. And it makes you think. It makes you feel really uneasy. It's such a a paradox, such a perfect situation. The perfect nanny. She's a great cook. The kids love her. She puts the mind of those two parents at ease. It's just the perfect situation, except she's extremely unhappy and frustrated. In her real life, she lives in a terrible, small, dingy apartment. Uh, Her life previous to this family was also very hard. So you show that paradox between the happiness, the surface where, yeah, you're part of the family, and she really becomes part of the family, and the sad fact that she has no status. She has nothing that belongs to her. Exactly, and she wants to belong. She wants to be part of something, but she doesn't know exactly what. She probably wants to be part of this family, and she's very, very afraid of um, the fact that one day the mother, Miriam, is going to tell her, you know what, we don't need you anymore, because that's the story of her life. Each time a woman told her, we don't need you anymore, thank you, you were a perfect nanny, but actually it's not enough. Even if you're perfect, it's not enough for Mm -hmm. you to belong. So I think, you know, that it's like a woman who had a lot of breakups and one day she say, I can't deal with this. It's too much for me. I'm suffering too much. And that's probably why she kills the children, because it's too much for her. She wants to belong. So this is the ultimate rejection. Yeah. After giving everything and being loved so much. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, Louise is like uh, a cup. It's a little cup that you put every day on the table and you don't look at the cup and you don't see that there are a lot of cracks inside the cup. And one day you put the cup on the table and the cup and it breaks. breaks. Yes. One thing that struck me also is how autobiographical it seems, at least on the surface. You know, here's a, a very interesting, I love this, and it's so telling about French society as it evolves, that it's sort of a reversal. Here's a young Moroccan French woman who is employing a French woman, Francaise de Souche, you know, mm-hmm. a real, real French, real European, as far as memory can reach. Whereas we're used to the opposite diagram where, of course, the employer is French and the employee is Moroccan. So that's that was very interesting. There are so many parallels between the, your protagonist and yourself. You know, one day I was in a classroom presenting the book and a young um, teenager asked me, I want to know, do you have children and are your children alive? Because <laughs> of the book. So I would say that's the limit of the autobiography because uh, obviously uh, I didn't have a nanny like Louise. But of course, I, I try to use the things that I experienced because it's a way to make the what I say more real exactly. and, uh, and yeah. to feel exactly what I say. But it's not so much autobiographical because uh, Miriam, she's an immigrant. And I don't 
think of myself as an immigrant because I live between Morocco and France and mm. I think of myself as a French and as a Moroccan. Binational. Yes, yeah. binational. And um, as I said before, I had a nanny when I was a child. For me, it's not something weird to employ someone and to have someone to take care of my child. But for Miriam, it is because I think that Miriam, she comes from uh, maybe very poor extraction. And for her, it's very weird to become a bourgeoise and to become someone who is going to be a boss and who is going to tell someone else what to do and to pay her. So that's the big differences between Miriam and, and myself. And for me, as somebody who was born in France but never lived there and is always in touch with France, so my family is there now, it's fascinating to see the evolution of the relationship between the French French, you know, the Christian French, the what so-called <laughs> the white, white French, so-called white, and formerly colonials who've been there now for generations, and a lot of them still having a real hard time being accepted, being prosperous, but more and more of them becoming part of the bourgeoisie. That's what Exactly, really <laughs> and that's why I absolutely wanted to say that, you know, I think that the aim of literature is to show that reality is much more complex than uh, all the cliches and the caricatures that we have in the media or in a lot of movies. If you have someone poor, he's going to be black or uh, from uh, Maghreb. If someone who is rich, is going to be white. But in the reality, it's not like this. Reality is much more complex. And today you have immigrants who are rich and you have white people who are poor. And I think that's very important in literature to try to build complex characters and to say also to our readers, look, you have immigrants who are rich and who can now employ a woman who is white. And it's probably violent for some people to read this. It's violent to them because it's not what they are used to read or to see. But it's very important to write also about this bourgeoisie, not always to draw characters of immigrants who are victims and who are suffering, but also who are succeeding in this society. Yes, and I'm a bit like you. Most of the people I know, my family my cousins, my friends who are in France now are highly educated. They're successful. And so it's a little bit confusing. You know, on the one hand, we see these people are doing really well, being accepted for who they are. And at the same time, this reality continues to be so challenging for so many Algerian, Moroccans, uh, black Africans, etc. How does it feel for you, someone in your position, obviously doing really well, in France, but knowing that there are so many Moroccans, Algerians, etc., who are still uh, suffering, how does it feel? That's a very good question. You know, it's very ambiguous because uh, sometimes it's weird, but sometimes it's uh, difficult just to say that I'm a happy immigrant, that I don't suffer, that I'm not a victim of racism, that uh, I'm not a victim of uh, segregation, that uh, I live the best life I could live. I live in the center of Paris. Uh, I write. I do a job that I love. So it's very difficult because at the same time, I have sometimes the feeling to betray my community. And I'm afraid that they are going to look at me as if I sold my soul, soul to the uh. devil, you know. And I want to tell them it's not that. It's not that I sold my soul. It's just that I succeeded. But it's very difficult. But at the same time, I don't want to play the role of the victim if I'm not. Right, right. And things are constantly in flux and evolving, changing, getting I better I just try to be sincere and to be true. It's the, I think, the only way out in this mess. 
You have just been appointed a few months ago by French President Emmanuel Macron as his official representative for the francophonie, which I find hard to translate. The image, the beauty of the French language and culture worldwide, which really is shared by now by so many other countries than France or Belgium and, and Switzerland. Um, how does it How does this political role fit within your life, both as a creative person and as somebody from the Maghreb, a Muslim woman whose native land uh, not so long ago was under French colonial rule? Some might say it's still under neo-colonial domination by France. How, how, does, that, how does that work for you? Uh, as a writer, of course, uh, language is my first tool, my only tool. It's the the tool I work with, and French language is a language, of course, that I that I love. So for me, it's absolutely natural as a writer to try not only to to try to promote this language and to make it known, and to say uh, also to the world that the French language is not only France. That we have um, poets in uh, Congo, we have poets in Haiti, in Canada, in the whole world, and that's the the beauty of French language is that uh, it is spoken in the in the whole world, and that's extraordinary. And uh, as a Maghreb as a Maghrebin woman, I would say that you know I'm very shocked by the fact that conservatives and Islamists, um, for example, in Morocco, they say, "Oh, you speak French, so you betray your community. You speak French, you want to go abroad, you want to go to the Western countries, so you're not a good Muslim. You're not a good Moroccan. We have one language." We have one book, we have one horizon, and that's the only thing you can do. And I want to fight against this because I think that speaking another language is not a, a betray. Speaking another language is something extraordinary and that we should give this to our youngsters and not only tell them that there is one culture and one language. I think it's very, very dangerous. So for me, it's a, really an ideological struggle to fight for francophonie because it's a way to say, you know, colonization is over. It's not a question of colonization. If you speak uh, French, it's not that you are messing with the, the colonization and everything. No, you're speaking French because you want to read books in French, you want to watch movies in French, as you can speak English and Spanish and other languages. So for me, it's very important to fight against those conservative and this uh, way of looking at uh, languages, very ideological. So you don't feel there's a contradiction necessarily between promoting the French language and its culture, the culture that comes attached to the French language, which is no longer just French. As you're pointing out, Haiti is francophone. Uh, of course. Quebec you know, is francophone. Uh, and, you know, in Algeria, in Morocco, we have very, very wonderful novelists who wrote in French, but there were completely, totally Moroccan and Algerian. And Khatab Yassin, who is a very famous uh, Algerian writer, he said, I speak French to say to the French that I'm not French. And I think it's a very, very good sentence and very relevant. And this man, uh, Katab Yassin, who's one of the first great writers of, of the French language in North Africa, actually called the French language war booty. And that was something positive. We fought hard enough and we want to keep it. We don't want exactly. anybody it's to... Exactly. It's ours <laughs> now. And we don't have to justify ourselves. And as you were saying, it's not even a matter of one language in Morocco and Algeria. Before 
colonials, there are two languages. And you know, I would say it's not very politically correct to say this, but uh, Arab also is a colonies Arabic. A colo- uh, Arabic is a colonial language because it's you, not you our... You might argue that y- as well. Yeah, you mm. know, in Morocco or in Algeria, it's not our first language. It came with the colonization of, of the uh, Arabs. Although the French colonization made that point moot. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, it became a native language because people had to re- protect themselves. Yeah. And one thing that struck me about Macron, who I don't necessarily agree with politically in many instances, and this was during his presidential campaign, he did something that really caught my attention. He actually called colonization a war against humanity, which no president before him had ever done. It really surprised me and delighted me, too, because I've always felt that part of the problem between France and its former uh, colonial empire is this refusing to honestly tell the history of the past. In the case of what happened to the Jews in France, they're very good. They're very conscientious. Every year they commemorate it and they express their regret for what France did to those poor French Jews. But until Macron, it was just almost impossible, it seemed, politically to do anything comparable for the colonials like the Algerians, Moroccans, Tunisians, uh, South Saharan Africans. What do you think has made Macron able to cross that uh, Rubicon? I think that's a question of generation. You mm. know, Macron, he was born after May 68, May 68. He was born in uh, 74, I think. So it's a question of generation. For him, it's absolutely natural that colonization was a crime. There is no question for him. There is, a, for, for, for instance, he's the first president who is not saying that May 68 was a very bad thing and that uh, it moved to the rules of family and uh, etc. and traditional values. He belongs to the same generation as myself, for for whom colonization is a crime and sexual freedom is a good thing. So I really, really think that's a question of generation. What do you say to those who, again, will criticize you and criticize everybody in the Macron government, who might say this idea of francophonie, then will say there's a positive. How can it be a negative? We add it to our culture. We don't subtract it from our culture. But then there are those who say, look, France is still a very strong country that tends to meddle in other people, let alone Morocco. Morocco mm-hmm. is constantly brought up as an example of what France is doing, shouldn't do, and all that. What do you say to those people who say, but we haven't yet been able to exercise the demons of the past, and francophonie is sort of an attempt to compete with English as another imperial language? Oh, I tell them, you know, time to time of change is now. If they want to change things, I'm waiting for them. They can come, and I think that the diagnosis is good, but now we have to move forward and try to change things. But we can criticize and criticize, but uh, it's not going to change anything if we just speak. We have to, to move on and to try to change, actually, the situation. Because the francophonie was already a big idea before Macron. And you know, francophonie is it the, an idea that was not built and thanked by France, but by Bourguiba, uh, by Diori, by uh, Senghor, by people who Senegal were... Yeah, and, and by Sen- Tunisia and Niger, by people who were colonized. And de Gaulle, he was not okay with this idea. <laughs> he was like, it's very weird because it's French now is going to be the language that w- will help people from the, the ex-colonial empire to get along together. So it's also, you know, it's not 
always about France, francophonie. When you are a Moroccan like me, for, ex- for instance, and you go to Senegal, you speak French. When you are a uh, Moroccan and you go to Canada to study, you speak French. It's not always about France. You can deal a lot with francophonie and never go to France or never deal with France. So that's what we are trying to, to say with the President Macron, is that France is not the center of francophonie. And uh, France doesn't want to be, because now the center of francophonie is much more in Africa than in, in France. In fact, you remind me of a, a quick memory I had in Quebec, the first time I went to Montreal. And I ran into some French people there. And the contrast was such for me as a, somebody who was born during colonial rule and had a lot of fear towards France, to run into French people versus running into the Canadian French was such a contrast. There was almost some sort of solidarity between the non-French <laughs> Quebecois and the Algerians versus the French from France. And there was this almost brotherhood between non-French, yeah. French-speaking people. That's very interesting. And that was a good example exactly. of francophonie. You are also known for having taken strong positions, honest and courageous positions on women's rights in, in Morocco. You also wrote a very controversial book before this book that's very imaginative, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. So the rights that you defend for women in Morocco, in the world, include sexual rights. And you have also advocating the banning of the burqa in that country. What have been some of the reactions to the, your advocacy in Morocco? As you can imagine, some people were very shocked, very outrageous against me, of course, because they think that I despise the the tradition, that I'm not a good Moroccan, that I'm not a, a good woman, that I'm too French, that I speak too much French. So a lot of Moroccan hate me, of course. But I think that also a large part of young Moroccan, young Moroccan women were very happy and very proud that someone there to speak out about things that are very, very taboo in Morocco because everyone knows what's happening, but no one wants to speak about it because it's uh, what we say, it's a shame to speak about this. And I think that enough with the shame. Now we have to defend those who are suffering because of this shame, the homosexual, the, the woman, the woman who has to have an abortion in a Uh, you know, in a little room with someone who is giving her bad medicine and she's dying. We don't care about shame in this uh, situation. I think that we have to face the reality. And that's a big problem in Morocco, but also in Maghreb, just to face the reality, to look at it and to say, yes, we have a problem. The king, still saying the new king, has been in power almost 20 years. When his father died and he became the king, Mohammed VI, seemed to have all the right instincts when it came to women's rights and other things. And he came up with a new law called Mudawana, which was at least on paper supposed to give women more rights. It did, it did. So tell us about that. What transformation, if any, has come as a result of this? You know, when I was a little girl in the 80s in Morocco, a man could repudiate a woman just by uh, saying a sentence, his wife, Mm. just by saying a sentence. And the woman, she had to leave the house, leave her children because she couldn't have the custody of the children. She couldn't have a passport. uh, She couldn't travel. She couldn't do anything. And a woman couldn't give her nationality to her children. If she was married to a foreigner, she Mm. couldn't give her nationality. Now she can. Now a man 
can't repudiate his wife. Now uh, it is very difficult for a man to marry more than one woman. He still can, but it's very, very difficult. The marriage of a minor is forbidden. So it has changed a lot, the situation of women. But of course, it's not enough. It's not enough. And now for now seven years or more, the government is a, an Islamic government, very conservative. And it's very, very, very difficult to make them move on those uh, topics. The king is still in charge, but there is at least formally this uh, mechanism for a government that which is below the king to enact certain laws. And right now is more of an Islamic, albeit considered quote-unquote, moderate Islamist government. When these new laws took effect, uh, were local judges still able to ignore it and, and still go on with their own prejudices, or were they forced in some way to actually obey the law? I think that in a majority they were forced to obey the law, but uh, it's very different between, for, for instance, cities and rural areas. So I think that in the most cases they were forced to, to obey the laws. So there must be a, a marked improvement then if, if the law is being respected? Yes, yes, yes. There is an improvement for women, of course. Now a woman, she can have a divorce, she can have the custody of her of her children. And the main topic now is heritage, uh, inheritance. Yes, exactly. Yes, that was my next the, question. Yes, it's the main topic now. We want to fight for women to inherit the same as her brother. And it's very, very difficult. I know a very famous woman. She's a theologist. Her name is Asma Lamrabet. And she's very clever and very open-minded. And she tried to fight for this. And she was just fired because she said out loud that she wanted this law to, to change. So it's very, very difficult to change this law because it's particularly religious. Something is written in the Quran about the yes. inheritance. Although the Quran had come as an improvement, again, for women's rights, but it didn't go all the way and make women and, and men equal. Yeah, and you know now we, we pay the same taxes as women, so I don't know why we can inherit the same. So it's very easy to use Koran in a way and yeah. not to use it in the other way. When you go to Tunisia, do you see a contrast between the women's yeah. status there and with Morocco? Yeah, yes, there's a big contrast. And now I think that uh, Tunisians are going to change the law on inheritance. And there is a big contrast because for many years since Bourguiba, there was a very uh, profound work on the culture of Tunisian. They really try to defend the mixity of uh, public in the public spaces, the fact that women has to go to school. The problem in Morocco is that 40% of women can't read and can't write. We are very, very late on this field. This is really, really a problem of education. Women and little girls has to had to go to school first if they want to fight for their rights. That's the big problem in Morocco. In Tunisia, 99 or 95% of uh, of the, the people are alphabetized. I remember last time I was in Morocco, I have a, a cousin there who's quite royalist, very nationalistic, very proud of Morocco, doesn't like people to say negative things about it. But he's a public school teacher. And when they were walking through Fez, the city of Fez, and there's this giant open plaza right in front of the king's palace. And there he just was absolutely livid, explaining to me, you know, this whole empty, wasted space. There used to be a school standing here. And they took it out just to make the king's palace more resplendent. And he was just seething with anger. 
Yeah, you know, it was a, a politic during the reign of uh, Hassan II because when the um, left-wing began to fight against him, he said, we need to shut down the schools because if people go to school, they're going to fight against me and I'm going to lose my power. So he decided to close school and to open more mosques and to make people go to the army because it was better for his power. Uh, I think that the king today tries to catch up, but it's very, very difficult, very difficult to take women, especially women, to school. Well, the same almost could be said about this country or many countries where the, the Republican Party is not interested in public education. They're trying to close schools and libraries because they are worried about the same thing. If if the populace is educated, that's trouble for the very, very rich and the people at the very top. You also wrote this incredible book called, in French, Le Jardin de l'Ogre. I don't think it's been translated yet. It's, it, it's translated, it's, but it's not, not out yet. Yeah, not Wonderful. out yet. Yes. Can't Next wait to year, see I it. think. So that book was your first book, and it was controversial because it spoke about a woman who was addicted to sex and all the troubles she ran into. What prompted that idea, which is a really original idea? Dominique Strauss-Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> the famous... Yes, because, you know, one day I was watching TV... And I saw the face of uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn. For those who have forgotten about DSK, as he was commonly referred to, he was probably the favorite candidate to become next president before Hollande became president, until this scandal caught up with him, his sexual addiction in New York, aggressing a, a, a poor woman uh, who was working there as a maid. Exactly. Tell us more. So I was be- breastfeeding my son, actually. It was a three uh, in the morning and I was watching TV and I saw this man, this man who was so powerful, this man who was going to be the next uh, president of uh, of France and he was with the police and they were saying that he tried to rape someone and then I discovered this pathology of sex addiction. Pathology, uh, yeah, real every, pathology. Everyone yeah. in France was speaking about this and all the newspaper were writing, the journalists were writing about this pathology and I discovered this and I had the idea I can build... And other camp. women came yeah, out of yeah. the woodwork saying this happened to them also. He was the uh, first Weinstein, I think, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was a sort of Weinstein. First, the first Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Your book is about a woman who's addicted to sex. How did the Dominique Strauss-Kahn inspire this idea? Because I wanted to write a book about a woman who was a sort of a anti-hero, a woman who was very dark, who was a liar, who was not a good woman, because I was a little bit fed up of those characters of women who are a lover or a mother, a very good person. I wanted someone very dark. And and so when I discovered the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case, I had the idea, it unlocked my inspiration, and I said, okay, I'm going to write about a sex addict woman. That's fantastic. And that's really what brought you to the attention of uh, those publishers in France, and they noticed how talented you are. It also provoked a lot of these funny remarks and jokes about you as possibly a sex addict, too, and from your journalistic colleagues. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, when I said to my journalist colleague, you know, I'm going to stop working because I want to be a writer, I want to write a novel... 
I knew that they were laughing behind my back and saying, okay, her husband uh, has money, so she's just going to stay home with her son. This, she's not going to write anything. So they were not believing in me. And I think it was a little bit misogynistic because probably if a man had said, I'm going to be a writer, they would have said, wow, good for you. You're very brave to let the, your, your job and to go. So they were laughing at me, but uh, I must say that I didn't care. <laughs> Leila Slimani is the author of The Perfect Nanny, which won the Prix Goncourt in 2016, sold more than 600,000 copies in France, and has been translated into 40 languages. She spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Twenty-third media pioneer and Arab-American activist Don Bustani passed away at the age of 89. In 1996, Don had launched the Middle East in Focus radio program on KPFK Los Angeles's Pacifica Radio Network, which he hosted until 2014. For many years, he was also the president of the Los Angeles chapter of the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee, ADC. This week, we remember Don Bustani by bringing back a conversation we'd had with him about his friendship and collaboration with the late Casey Kasem, with whom he had co-founded America's Top 40s. Casey and I met three separate times. First time, I was 17, he was 13. My father had taken me 
with him to deliver insurance policies. He served the community in Detroit. And Casey's dad, a grocer, was one of his clients. And so we walked into the grocery store, and there I saw a, a younger teenage kid straightening out the items on the grocery shelves. <laughs> and that <laughs> that has been a trait of Casey's all his life. He just liked order. He liked to see things neat in position. And so we didn't hang out at those ages. And we simply met, and that was it. And then I, four years later, I met him when I was leaving Wayne University, and he was just coming in, and we met with a group of people in the radio guild. Uh, Detroit schools had their own FM station. Casey was coming into that. But oddly, radio was not Casey's aspiration. What he wanted to do, more than anything, was to play baseball with the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he played in high school, but he didn't make it to the bigs, as they say. And then uh, we went our separate ways. He finished school, went into the Army because we had conscription in those days, and everybody served after college. If you got a deferment for college after high school, you could do that. And then he shipped out to Korea where he worked with Armed Forces Radio Service as a DJ. And two years later, he was home into the jungle of commercial radio. When he was at Wayne... He had played on one of the biggest radio shows ever in radio history, the, the Lone Ranger. He had played the boy in the Lone Ranger. And he also played a, a kid on the Green Hornet, produced by the same company, ABC Radio, at station WXYZ in Detroit. And that was their flagship station, right behind New York anyway. But that's where the Lone Ranger and several other shows were produced. You know, we had gone our separate ways. I was in L.A., you know, scrambled my way into the business. And I was producing local talk shows on television. Casey, in the meantime, was a, a top disc jockey in uh, Cleveland and, and I think Buffalo and then San Francisco. And then the DJ down here in L.A., you know, made an offer he couldn't refuse. And Casey came down to Los Angeles and then took a, you know, a spot on uh, KRLA radio, became a, a big DJ here in town. He told me stories of how he would drive to Bakersfield for some regular gigs there, and he'd get mesmerized by the road, the long, monotonous road. That's something that stayed with me. But he was quite active. He was moving around quite a bit for a while. Right. You know what he was doing? He was promoting, organizing dances, you know, various spots, including Bakersfield. So that's what took him there and other places all around Southern California. But you're right when you say he, uh, he was very active. He was that. And uh, somehow he and I got together in 68 here. And, you know, the bonding thread was that we were both Lebanese mm -hmm. and both from Detroit. Yes. <laughs> we both had sat on the lap of the thinker, Rodin's thinker, <laughs> on the front lawn of Detroit Museum of Art. He does look vaguely Lebanese, the thinker, come to think of it. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> yeah. that, never, that never hit me. That's why you, you felt so comfortable in his lap. Oh, so, yeah. so you're two Lebanese boys from the biggest Lebanese town this side of the Atlantic, certainly. Right, this side of Beirut. Mm, this side of Beirut. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. We hung out and started a business of producing radio commercials for advertisers 
who themselves couldn't get to L.A. or New York, where the main voiceover talent was. So we advertise in the trade papers, telling them uh, if they have the spots they'd like to do with some top voices, send us a copy. We'll send them our notes on the copy, and we'll send them sample tapes of voiceover people. And they would pick which voiceover talent they wanted to do, and then we'd produce the spots for them. We started out in a closet in Casey's apartment, uh, hanging a, a proper microphone from the, the coat bar, the hanger bar. And uh, guys came in to audition, and we'd have to say, speak into the closet, please. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for a while it was nuts, but then we went into the commercial studios to do the commercials uh, themselves, just like the big boys did, wherever they were in the country. And how did you guys come up with the idea of the top 40? Well, all this while, this was during 19, end of 68 and through 69, almost every day Casey would poke me in the ribs and say, we got to do a national countdown show. <laughs> and then when a, a company called Watermark, which was then known as Charlatan Productions, <laughs> with, a, with a track record of having produced the Miami Pop Festival, some top-notch music festivals on their shingle here in town. Casey knew one of the principals and gave him a call, and we made an appointment, and Casey and I went and pitched the idea of a countdown based on the Billboard charts with stories about the artists and the producers and the songwriters, and they, they loved the idea. Now, you folks up in the Bay Area will appreciate who funded this operation. The financier for... Watermark and American Top 40 was Tom Driscoll, the owner of Driscoll Farms, the Berry King in California. You can't live in California without having eaten Tom's berries. <laughs> so uh, he hung in there for the three years that we uh, operated in the red. Casey, of course, was still a top DJ at KRLA, and the president of the company was Tom Rounds, the late Tom Rounds, I should say. Tom died just two weeks ago. Casey, two days ago. Very ironic that death shouldn't have come so close. But, you know, we're all <laughs> in or close to our 80s now, so we got to expect that. Anyway, we, uh, we came close to throwing in the towel a few times because of uh, you know, operating in the red for so long. The show went on the air, which is well known now because of all the media attention we've had, uh, on the 4th of July, 1970, on seven stations from coast to coast. But 10 years later, the show was on over 500 stations in the U.S., plus another 40 or 50 around the world, Armed Forces uh, Radio. And as they say, and the rest is history. Yeah. Getting to know Casey over the years and spending substantial amounts of time with him for a few years, one day it occurred to me what a great raconteur. He was, and off as well as on the air, what yeah. a lover of storytelling he was. And it reminded me in that way of my own father in Algeria. You know, that I made that connection. At that point, I started wondering, and I asked him this too, whether there might not be something special, some gift for storytelling in that part of the world that we all come from, the Middle East and North Africa. Tell us, what do you think of that uh, perhaps self-serving theory that, that we have a special touch for, culturally speaking, for telling stories? I don't hold with it 
I don't, uh, you know, deny that it exists. I just am not aware that it's something to be aware of. Sharma said, my might differ with you. Well, so. I, see, I'm not <laughs> arguing against it. I'm mm. not saying that there isn't some storytelling DNA in mm. Arabs. <laughs> there may be, but the same thing as in American Indians have that same Oh, yeah, talent. it's a universal gift, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think yes, it's a universal sure. among human beings, for just sure, telling sure. stories. Behind the incredibly sweet and gentle demeanor that endeared Casey to so many, he was also a very perfectionistic and diligent and disciplined person, which I think to me explained a lot of his success in life. Tell us how this might have translated in your collaboration on the Top 40 show. He struck me as such a stickler for for perfection, for for detail. Sometimes it was hard for me because I was working on the project together with him, and man, everything had to be just right. Yes. <laughs> yes. The but, anecdote that uh, we referred to a moment ago had to do with his blow-up at fact. In the script, the words and the music, there was a long-distance dedication. It was a very sad one, a heartbreaker about a dog that died. And Casey is a, is a prime actor. He's not just a radio voice. Mm. He's an actor. Mm. He gets into... Uh, let me put it another way. A lot of people recognize this. When he reads copy, he reads for meaning. He knows what every word is there for, and he wrings the meaning out of it when he puts all the words in a sentence together. And this one time, the buck stopped at my desk. I had left the round down with an up-tempo, up-mood song leading into this Sad, sad story. <laughs> and we came, we came out of the music, and Casey started to read the beginning of it, and he blew up. He said, I can't, I can't read a, a sad down piece coming out of an up tempo. And he's, who did this? But where's my standing? God damn, we can't do this. <laughs> I, I must have been out of the studio when it happened, because he said, where, you know, on the tape, he said, where's my standing? I was somewhere else at the moment. And that tape was uh, hijacked, stolen by one of the engineers who distributed it all over town. And you you can still hear it on various... Yeah, uh, I, I know, found it on shows. the Internet. They, they're still showing it there as part of a tribute to him. One image that stays with me is when we, um, we had finished the dedication, a very special sculpture, bronze sculpture for Alex Ode and his... Sculpture, let me point out, that was created and executed by you. Yes. Because yes. you are a, a fine, <laughs> fine you. sculptor. So that's how I, I came to know first Casey and then you right after. You guys made that, that whole thing possible. It's just incredible. But so here's the climax of the whole thing, the dedication with the mayors and the politicians. Everybody's there. The press is there, CNN, etc. And afterwards, when everybody leaves... Guess who's picking up the trash without asking anybody, but leading by example, picking up trash, and everybody's looking at each other and says, shoot, 
Casey's picking up the trash. We better start picking up some trash too. He did. I, I was at the dedication, yeah. but uh, he wasn't. Uh, I didn't notice him picking he up. He wasn't trash telling and I wasn't helping him. I was standing around talking to people, maybe yeah, we were all, others. We're all busy with more important things, and he he didn't even bother to come and tell any of us. Look, could we uh, clean this up? No, no. He started doing it himself, which I, I found really remarkable. Well, his priorities were straight, very straight. So he was very uh, gentle at the same time as a real perfectionist. Very interesting yeah. combination. Khalil, now that we've talked about the fun stuff about Casey, yeah. let me tell you about the important stuff about him. Mm. Casey was very social justice-minded and very active in trying to bring social justice about and in supporting social justice movements. He was uh, very concerned about the homeless in L.A., and as an attention-getting act, uh, he spent one night sleeping on the sidewalk down in, uh, I think, on Main Street in downtown L.A. and got the desired notice in the press that there were people who sleep on the street out there, not by choice. As Reagan was claiming, he was saying it's a free country. If people want to sleep under uh, highway overpasses, it's their right. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's their right. This it's is not a, a this choice. This is a free country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the choice is made for them by circumstances. That's a, a more wide-reaching thing, is uh, championing those who didn't have a voice and didn't have a chance. That would overlap with his going out on the limb as a celebrity whose perception by the public is tied into his income. He'd go out on a limb and admonish society for treating Arabs who were not very popular at that time. Casey told me a really interesting story in 1982 after Beirut was bombed by the Israelis. How he finally decided to be active was one day his 10-year-old son comes to him and says, Dad, I really hate Arabs. He says, what? Why, my son, why do you hate Arabs? He says, because they're ugly, they're violent, they're mean. I just saw them on TV. They just kill people. I hate Arabs. Told me at that point I decided I needed to do something. Is <laughs> my son uh, developing self-hatred as an Arabite? Something needs to be done. And it's about that time I think that you guys finally just stepped into the picture and really made incredible contributions from then on to this rectifying the the prejudice and the the bigotry and all that. Yeah. The last time I heard his voice was in 2008 after I sent him a copy of my newest book of cartoons. And he called me right after that. He was really yeah. happy, and I was happy to hear his voice. But after that, maybe two years later, three years later, I ran into you at one conference, Palestinian Women's Conference, and you were there. You informed me that he was quite ill, actually, which was a shock to me. I hadn't heard any of that. He led such a good, not just a righteous lifestyle, but also a good, healthy lifestyle. He exercised. He was a vegan. He was a vegan. He, and he was in good but, physical shape. And beyond beyond the, the health aspect, this was another example of his compassion, his deep yeah. compassion. He really felt sorry for the, the animals who were exploited and killed and, oh, yeah. and eaten. So tell me a little bit how that happened. Okay, let me tell you what I know about yeah. illness. There is a disease called Lewy body dementia. Mm. And the bodies they're referring to is not the patient's body, but bodies that are components in the, I guess, the bloodstream. And these Lewy bodies get into the brain and slowly and gradually uh, create a dementia mm. in, this, in the subject. 
And that's in Casey's symptoms began appearing back then. Uh, we'd be on the phone and talking, and I'd say, gonna, I, I can't think of the word I want here, and it means such and such. And he'd come up with the word, but he'd say, that's happening to me all the time now, too. Uh, he's four years younger than I. So that's, that's the condition. He contracted the disease, and it gradually, slowly took over his body. And some of the symptoms resemble Parkinson's disease, where you lose motor control and uh, speech control. And that, uh, that took him down. Casey Kasem was beloved not only by the Arab-American community around him that he did so much for, but by the public at large, obviously. he was a, Absolutely. Who knew him as a real prince of a man, compassionate, generous to a fellow. Jews, too. Jewish yes, Americans. Absolutely. As well. He was a bridge. Big fans, yeah. You know, compassionate, generous to a fault, eager to give back and make a difference. What would you say in just a few words after all that you've already said, if you want, Casey's legacy will be in 10 years, 50 years from now? Well, I don't think it'll change from the legacy that I've been observing and reading about from fans and longtime listeners who never met him or met me, but are sending uh, the family condolences and sending me condolences. And uh, they're, they're just saying they, he was part of their family. Growing, you know, whatever generation it was, growing up, listening to his shows. What they listened for, ostensibly, to begin with, was the music, to hear the pop, the, the best, the top pops uh, songs and stuff. But once you get into the countdown, you hear the music, the music becomes not as important mm -hmm. as Casey's stories telling the listeners about the singers, the songwriters, the producers, all kinds of stories about their lives, their trials and tribulations, and reading uh, the long-distance dedications and paying them off with a hit song. Media pioneer, Arab-American activist, and philanthropist Don Bustani passed away in Santa Barbara on April 23rd at the age of 89. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.